0: Hey, Gamfest fans. If you're a reader of Slate, as well as a listener, you might have noticed that Slate.com recently installed a paywall. It's not a paywall for the podcasts, but it is for the print side. We wanted to let you know that with a Slate Plus membership, not only do you get great Slate podcasts without any ad interruptions, but you also get access to all the great writing on the Slate.com website. From recent coverage of the coronavirus to who counts, an ongoing investigation into whose voices will be left out of the 2020 election, Slate is committed to keeping you informed about everything this year has in store. And your support is extremely valuable. It helps Slate continue this important work. You can sign up for Slate Plus now at slatecom plus. and thanks. And if you're already a member, just log in at slate.com/login. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for April 9th, 2020, the It's Easy to Talk About Lysol edition. I'm David Plotz. I'm in Washington, D.C. John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes is in his home in New York City. Hello, John Dickerson. Hello, David. And Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and of Yale University Law School. Shuttered Yale University Law School is in her home in New Haven, Connecticut. Hi, Emily.
1: Hello, hello. Yeah, law school has moved to Zoom. It is not shuttered.
0: Uh, I didn't. I guess I didn't literally mean It's
1: physically it. shuttered.
0: On today's GabFest, we will visit again with Dr. Amos Adalja, the doctor and epidemic expert who talked to us a few weeks ago. How are we doing with COVID-19 compared to where he thought we'd be when we talked to him a few weeks ago? Then, inspectors general, President Trump's extraordinary, dangerous, and dictatorial attacks on inspectors general, plus a big fight about the exit of Bernie Sanders from the presidential race. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. Dr. Amos Adalja is a senior scholar at Johns Hopkins University's Center for Health Security. He focuses on emerging infectious disease, pandemic preparedness, biosecurity, and he's based in Pittsburgh. We spoke to Dr. Adalja Adalja Three weeks ago, as the worst of this pandemic began, or as it seemed to be starting to accelerate. So, Dr. Adalja, when we spoke to you three weeks ago, you told us to really watch out for hospitalizations in particular and the strain on hospitals. As you look over the past three weeks and as you try to look ahead, how broadly speaking would you assess where we are? There are th- obviously thousands dead, multiple. Thousands and thousands upon thousands sickened, society shut down. But have we are we heading in the right direction? As far as you see,
2: I do think we are heading in the right direction because when I spoke to you last, I knew that there was going to be this mountain of cases that we were going to to have that this was a not not a containable virus, and I expected us to get sort of to the, the place that we are now because of the undetected spread that had been going on and what this virus represented. I do think we're in a better place now even though you're seeing death counts rise because we knew this was inevitable but it seems to be that even in our hardest hit areas like New York City the hospitals were able to increase capacity to a point where they didn't go into complete crisis mode where they were rationing care and we seem to have hit either a plateau or a peak in New York City and I think that's the the most that's kind of the weakest link in our in our systems pandemic preparedness because New York City has unique characteristics in terms of its population density, its hospitals kind of always being almost at stress levels on a day-to-day basis, and the fact that it got hit early before resources weren't in place. So I think the fact that New York was able to survive gives me a sigh, a sigh of relief, and I do think we have tough days ahead of us in places like New Orleans and Detroit and Chicago. But the fact that New York was able to cope with this is really something that, that shows that we have the capacity to do this if we if we actually work hard to, to make sure that resources are met.
1: How do you feel about the next step? So if we succeed in flattening the curve and keeping the numbers down, then we'll have presumably created a space in which we could have mass testing, we could have contact tracing, we could take the steps that other countries, particularly in Asia, have successfully used to be able to eventually reduce physical distancing. But there's a huge mobilization and ramping up involved in those efforts. Do you think that the federal government is effectively getting millions and millions of tests online, has started to think about the infrastructure we need for contact tracing and and also for isolation?
2: so i do think that we've b- b- bought ourselves some time with social distancing and now that there there is this place where we can move to another phase where you start to see rest- rest- economic restrictions being lifted and some reanimation of the economy the, still the primary thing will still not will be not to have hospitals exceed capacity in order to do that we know there're going to be cases that are going to occur once you start to reanimate the economy but you want them to be at a, cl- a A slower clip, one that doesn't put hospitals into panic or or crisis. And in order to do that, we have to be able to identify cases rapidly, even mild cases, isolate them, do contact tracing, and kind of go back to what we should have done way back in January. And that's going to require a lot of testing. You want these tests to be as ubiquitous as an HIV test, that people can do these very easily, quickly, at the point of care. And there are test kits like that that have been developed and that have gotten emergency use authorization by the FDA. The question will be, can you scale them and put them everywhere that they need to be? And that The federal government and the state governments are going to have to work aggressively to do that. And at the other hand, we have to make sure that our health departments are adequately resourced to do the contact tracing. So that's going to involve a lot of manpower and making sure that they have the money to hire those people. <clears throat> and maybe they can actually repurpose people that are not working right now to do contact tracing. I, I know in in the Pittsburgh area, there are medical students that are helping the health department do contact tracing. There are ways to, to find other people that can learn how to do contact tracing so that we can augment the workforce, because you do need a lot of people to do contact tracing in order for it to be effective, and you don't want it, things to slip through the cracks. But this is going to be a major challenge, but I think that's where we're going next in this phase of the pandemic response.
3: I Amish, mean, in terms of what the public knows, there is sometimes a feeling that um, as a Catholic, uh, the cafeteria Catholic picks which portion of the um, catechism they want to believe in, and then orders their life that way. With with social distancing, with um, a lot of these public health rules, people seem to be picking and choosing, or then sometimes overpicking one thing they hear. I heard from the White House, for the first time I'd heard it anyway yesterday, about a 15, kind of 15-minute rule. So stay six feet away, but then something about, you know, if you're not in the presence of somebody uh, for for more than 15 minutes, that, that was I, it was a new piece of information that seemed to be being put out as public health. What is durable and what do we really know that we should operationally behave on in our daily lives?
2: Well, we're in the middle of a, a pandemic with an emerging infectious disease and there's lots of pieces of public health guidance that are going to fall, not not be known about, not that's going to change. What Dr. Burke said is actually correct. We don't get transmission of this from person to person without usually some amount of of contact for a period of time it's not as if you walk by somebody on a trail uh in the woods and all of a sudden you you've been exposed no when we what we define as an exposure is you know closer contact that that is for a duration of time it's not some fleeting contact so what she said there is correct and it's been in the guidance it's just not something that probably people ask her before because we do that when we look at healthcare worker exposures to see who truly was exposed. But yeah, it can be very daunting for someone in the public to keep track of all of these things because they do change. You may have different guidance from your, there's actually different guidance from certain state health departments versus the CDC. Uh, there, is, there is some room for, for uh, variation in how you implement the, the principles of public health when it comes to this, this outbreak.
0: What is the most encouraging thing you've seen in the research treatment and public behavior similarly, what's the most discouraging thing that you've learned about the disease or about our behavior?
2: I would say that what heartens me is the fact that hospitals have been able to, to meet the capacity. And it might sound paradoxical for me to say that when we're seeing record numbers of deaths in, in New York City. But the fact, the fact is that we knew this was coming and we've been able to Avoid the Italy situation, and I think that's heartening because that was really what was premising many of the actions that were being taken. Many of the economic shutdowns were to avoid the Italian situation. And when you have a, a healthcare system move very quickly with assistance from federal and state governments to meet capacity, to get ventilators to where they need to go to, to be able to um, augment healthcare workforce in a place like New York City, I think that that tells you you can do it. Uh, Mostly anywhere because that's really where you're going to be hardest hit and and the fact that we haven't we've hit a plateau phase is is really heartening to me What I think is bad about this is the fact that this has become politicized on all sides of this and I, I'm somebody who goes on all three of the major news networks frequently and I have just noticed that all three of them have a have an issue and it sometimes makes it much harder to actually get good information out because you get slanted questions from all three and you don't you have a sound bite to answer and there's a lot more nuance to this so I do think that we expected this pandemic to become politicized by everybody, especially in an election year, and I think that's made it much worse because you've got certain decisions being made, and then people second-guessing them to wonder if there's a political motive behind them, uh, and and you've gotten people go- going back into their into their tribes, and I think that makes it much harder to to work in a pandemic environment. You know, there's science and there's medicine, and that's kind of not partisan, and it's a, and it's the it's the truth. So anybody trying to score political points over this. Uh, has made it much harder for and all of us to do our work. It, it's created conspiracy theories. It's created lots of cascading negative effects that we have to waste our time kind of battling back. And I think that's made it much harder, uh, definitely more difficult than getting the, the, the message out was during Ebola, for example.
1: Have you been following the um, conversation around the possibility that low dose exposure could lead to less serious, milder um, forms of COVID? And is that another hopeful possibility because it suggests that people who have brief exposures might get less sick and then that could help us build herd immunity faster?
2: So I would say in general, there is a dose response relationship, meaning the more you're infected with, the more likely you are to have severe symptoms. It's unclear to me, though, that people who get low exposures are always going to get mild, mild illness. So I think there's a little bit more to it than, than just that. And I don't think that having a low dose exposure is something that people should desi- should in and of itself desire or try to use as herd immunity. We're going to get to herd immunity just because this virus is contagious enough that that mostly everybody's going to get it over time. The low dose or high dose thing really only matters more in the high dose exposure. We're trying to explain why do sometimes healthcare workers get more severely ill than it might be because of their dose, which is true with many infectious diseases.
3: Help people sort then, I guess if the idea is that it's um, more than just temporary exposure, are people... Um because are people wrong to be you know, wiping down their packages that they're getting? Or, and the reason I ask is that when people are in that state of wiping down everything that comes in, it adds to that level of anxiety that then puts pressure on the politicians to make decisions about getting people back to normal or their tolerance for doing the things that actually might be more beneficial from a public health perspective.
2: Yeah. So I get lots of questions about, can you get this from this? Can you get this from that? And sometimes they can get very, very, very silly. Like when the UPS guy asks you to sign for something, how are you going to do that? Cause you have to use his electronic pen. <laughs> <hand. clears throat> so you get these types of things, which I are that's not how, it's not like the virus is thinking, you know, I'm going to exploit these really odd ways of getting it to get around. It's it's, I do think that people get very hung up on this because they're scared. They don't know there's shifting information. You know, I'm not somebody that wipes down my packages. I don't think that that's a major, major risk, but obviously if my, if I saw some, you know, a little kid walk by my package and sneezed on it before I picked it up, I probably would. I think it's, this is something that we have to all think about. We all have to be proactive about preventing from spreading any further. We really worry about the big things like mass gatherings or or certain congregations that that may get you ill. And it's going to be important as we start to reanimate the economy that people actually understand how to how to right size their own risk avoidance. And obviously, for people who have other medical conditions or older who are at risk for severe. Infections, they're going to have to be much more meticulous about this, but other people are going to have to start to be able to think about how to incorporate avoidance of coronavirus into their into their life.
1: I have to say I find some of that confusing. Like I absolutely would have not taken the electronic pen from the UPS delivery guy. In fact, he hasn't offered it to me in weeks. I am someone who's desperate to to right-size my risk avoidance strategies because I hate all of this, but I I feel confused about what I'm supposed to be doing. And part of the reason I feel that way is not for myself. It's the idea that I could expose someone, um, who has, who is much more compromised and vulnerable than I am.
2: I think it still goes back to the basics of washing your hands and not touching your face. And I think if you're going to take the the pen from the UPS person, the delivery person, just wash your hands. I think there's a lot of common sense that, that people aren't, aren't thinking about. And And I think people have real questions about it. And I don't think that there is not like black and white here. There's a lot of gray and you have to Look at these risks in your own, your own life, and decide what the best ways are to avoid it, and what what's go what's becoming you know too much, or what's becoming compulsive, and what's actually evidence based and warranted. And I think you know maybe I'm a little bit skewed because I'm in the hospital all the time, and I'm thinking that's my biggest exposure. That I'm around patients that actually have this. So when somebody tells me, you know, can I take a pen from somebody else, I, I actually find that silly because I'm in a room with a person that's coughing with coronavirus. So My risk perception is probably I have a very high threshold to worry about something versus versus the general public. And it may be my own bias that's coming out when I when I kind of laugh off some of these. But um, and and I think that everybody's going to come to a different place with with this as as we learn to live with it, because it's not going to go anywhere. Even when the social distancing ends, this virus is still going to be here. and We're going to have to think about social distancing in our own lives for some time until the vaccine is available.
0: Dr. Amos Adalja, thanks for. Coming back, and we'll talk to you again soon. Anytime. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Today, it will be a create your own. We will tell a story in Slate Plus if we can manage to get a story together. Not sure that's feeling like the right vibe right now, but whatever. We'll do it. Inspectors General, they are in the news This week, because President Trump has decided that the inspector general is his latest avenue of assault on government, on good government. So Michael Atkinson, the intelligence community inspector general who surfaced the whistleblower complaint that led to President Trump's impeachment, was removed in the dead of night at the end of last week. Glenn Fine, the Pentagon inspector general who was about to become the Chairman of the new Pandemic Responsibility Accountability Committee, the group that was going to police how the government spends the $2.2 trillion it just allocated for corona relief, was removed from his job as the Pentagon Inspector General, and now cannot become chair of that committee. President also attacked the HHS Inspector General, Christy Grimm, on Twitter because she had criticized the shortages of tests and of uh, PPE during the course of the epidemic, and, and President Trump took that affront personally. Emily, so what are inspectors general, who are inspectors general, and why is President Trump exercised about them right now? And I probably it's, left out some inspectors general in there, by the way.
1: You did leave one part out, but we'll get to that. Uh, inspectors general are this vital part of the federal government who are independent within the various agencies, and their job is to investigate waste, fraud, and abuse. So they're the people who have the power to say, wait, 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 that contract is going to some crony of the EPA secretary, or wait, 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 I went in and talked to a whole bunch of hospitals, and they say that They're not getting the help they need from the federal government. This program is not unrolling the way it was supposed to. Or the EPA is not informing local communities of an increase in toxins that they have a legal right to know about. And so they're... Really important people, if you care about the government functioning properly, they're the internal watchdogs in each agency. And that makes them the perfect target for President Trump. He does not want independent people within the federal government looking over his shoulder and in any way being able to gainsay his political appointees. And so that's what you're seeing this week. In the um, shadow of coronavirus, which has us all distracted for good reason, Trump is using his power to eliminate inspectors general who have shown real independence and pushed back against him. He's sending a message to all the IGs, watch out if you do your job aggressively, I'm going to come for you. And he's making it safer for his administration to operate with minimal, minimal oversight.
0: I mean, Emily, let's be real here. Who can be independent in the federal government? There's one president. The president has to be responsible for everything that happens in the federal government. And how can there be people who are undermining what the president wants to do? Surely the president has total authority over personnel within the federal government, Emily. That's the theory of the unitary executive.
1: Well, funny you should... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, John.
3: Oh, no, I just, I just want to note for a moment that that goofy voice that you just um that you just uh, uh embraced but before emily answers that question um can i just turn it just cuz david mentioned personnel which is one challenge but there's also just um operationally under a more traditional administration there is a tension between instances in which you want to move quickly and get things done and The proper oversight process, which, you know, wants to make sure that efficiency doesn't become an excuse for abuse, even people who believe in in the federal government in their bones recognize the tension between speed of action and oversight. But that legitimate tension shouldn't be mistaken for what's going on now. The
1: thing about the IGs though, John, is they have nothing to do with speed of action. They come in usually after the fact, right? And so But that's the point. Yeah. So it's no right. And and they're part of how the executive branch functions. But I mean, one reason that your irony, David, is well taken is that yet another thing that President Trump did this week was to nominate Brian Miller, a former White House counsel official, to the job of being the um, IG with the specific role of overseeing all the money that's going to flow out of Treasury. So this is separate from that pandemic accountability committee you talked about earlier. This is a person, a role that Congress, the Democrats fought really hard for because they didn't like the idea that Mnuchin, our secretary of Treasury, was just going to send all this money out the door to businesses with no idea of like who those businesses were, right? The original legislation said we wouldn't even know for six months which businesses received the funds. Okay. So the Democrats- Well, I, can I just interrupt
0: for- there for a second, Emily? I just, sorry. I just think it's great that we now have an official who's going to make sure that those funds go to companies connected to President Trump. We've, yeah, well, we've, so We've, we've guaranteed it.
1: Two problems. One is that Brian Miller is himself a Trump political person. He comes from this job in the White House Counsel's office where part of what he was doing was thwarting access to documents relating to the Mueller investigation you know he was the person responding to Michael Horowitz the justice department IG and he was blocking access and he also has in speeches embraced the unitary executive theory that you were ironically giving us earlier which is basically like the president has all the power and congress isn't supposed to question that and we can't have inspectors general who answer to congress rather than to the president and in that Vain, and also, in his resume, Miller looks a lot like Bill Barr, someone who seems like a kind of mainstream if Republican official who came up through um normal channels in the Justice Department, but who embraces this what used to be a very fringe un shared theory that really puts so much power with the president that Congress can't see inside the executive branch. And on top of all that, President Trump, when he signed the $2 trillion relief bill, issued a signing statement saying that he thinks he gets to decide which documents Congress gets to see through the inspector general, who is now nominated to be Brian Miller, though the one thing Congress has left, the Senate does have to confirm Miller's appointment
0: a Republican majority Senate. John, one of the things that we've come to realize so much during the Trump administration, which you are deeply familiar with, is how much of what we think of as being the rule of law or uh, good government is actually just norms of what have ha- what have how presidents and Congress have behaved and courts have behaved. What do you think the remedies are when you have a president who's so willing to extend executive power in the way that President Trump is and is backed by a whole movement of people who are willing to extend it, at least as long as Republicans are in power, and a court system and a, and a set of judges who are willing to allow them to do it, uh, and a Congress which essentially has been defanged. What, what remedies do we have well, given that?
3: I think uh, there are no. I mean, under in, in that uh, scenario, there are no remedies um, because people in the the people who have power make the rules. I, I do think it's important to go back to my previous point by way of getting to a remedy to recognize the distinction between what the Trump administration is doing, both specifically now, but also. What they're doing specifically now comes in a context, which is – and the context that it comes in is essentially any of these rules, regulations, laws, norms. And by the way, the president has shown, based on what we know from his previous cabinet secretaries and, and also from his behavior with respect to Ukraine, he has shown a, a, a disinclination, disinterest, um, and sometimes outright um, uh, dislike of actual laws, forgetting norms for the moment. Um So that's what the president is doing, and that is outside even of this existing tension, and I think it's important to understand the existing tension because what you don't want is somebody defending what the president's doing, which requires a whole new classification of defense and is much harder to defend. You don't want people giving a defense of what the president's doing using what is a a legitimate area of conflict, which is IGs oversee all laws, regulations, policies within a department. So they, what happens is it's not only what they actually investigate for the purposes of criminal wrongdoing. They also engage in constant ongoing kind of teeth cleaning of an organization that is kind of looking over the shoulder of the people doing the work. And, then, and that has both uh, uh, possible tensions in what they're actually doing. And then it also sets up ...habits of behavior, which in the best of all worlds represent the perfect habits of behavior that's in concert with both efficiency and laws, regulations and so forth, but is often in conflict. All that stuff is normal and natural, and I think people in both administrations who would like to make agencies more efficient often say that the IG process is uh, a little too overbearing. Um, maybe not even because of the original IG, but because so many of these agencies um, are clotted with red tape and different regulations. So that's the existing thing. And that needs to be monitored and cleaned up and fixed just for its own, regardless of what administration or what what party you're in. But to, to get to the actual president is to is to not make the mistake of thinking he's just being more efficient, you know, and this is a businessman cutting through the red tape. That's not what he's doing. And the reason this is so vital and important is that we've seen in the coronavirus case and in several others that if you don't follow the system of doing things, if you don't have your acting gear and stuff cleaned up and tight before the emergency hits, you can't figure it out in the moment. And that's true with corruption as well. You can't just like walk the cat back a lot of times because everybody has an interest in fuzzying up the past. So you need an IG to be on the case and watching so that people not only behave as good stewards of U.S. money, uh, taxpayer money, but also so that they do the right stuff in their jobs so that they you know, reach the outcomes the entire agencies were created to uh, bring about.
1: I mean, I guess I would say something else. Maybe I'm just so frustrated right now that we would even be thinking in normal governance terms. But part of what we're seeing is how Trump has moved the standards so far. So, you know, when he fired Jim Comey, that was a huge scandal. When he talked about firing his former attorney general, Jeff Sessions, that was a scandal. Now it's like barely a ripple that he's firing these career officials in the Justice Department who have this watchdog role. And, you know, look, like most people probably don't know that inspectors general exist, much less what they do. Plus any compound noun where you have the S on the first word is like a bad idea. It just sounds kind of stuffy. (laughs) And the reason that they were able to operate effectively and they have done so in growing numbers since Watergate is that – It just like you presidents were not going to fire the person who was supposed to be the watchdog because that just seems so obviously self-interested and corrupt that it would get you into trouble with the whole government. Now we have a situation in which Democrats are outspoken in criticizing Trump on this front. We have barely heard a peep from Republicans. The one thing is Grassley talking about murmuring about how he wants a letter in which Trump gives reasons for firing Atkinson, who is the person – Involved in the whistleblower complaint. And I mean, that is just so little pushback, it's kind of unreal. And I guess the other thing I want to say about Atkinson is Atkinson's job in the statute was to forward a whistleblower complaint to Congress if it was of urgent concern. Once he And it was credible. Once he made that determination, the word in the statute is shall. It's not may forward to Congress. It's shall. He was just doing his job. And so firing him, you have to buy into Trump's completely la-la-land narrative that, you know, his call to the Ukrainian president was perfect, that there was nothing wrong with the way he was operating. Like, you have to turn Atkinson into the bad guy in the story, which is just so far from reality. And the fact that there cannot be bipartisan, strong recognition of that. This is, like, why we are where we are. And then that, of course, is looking to the past. I mean, who even remembers things like impeachment and the Mueller investigation right now? But because of the pandemic and all of the spending that's going on and all of the terrible trouble hospitals and states are having and trying to deal with the federal government, it is very relevant going forward that we have these watchdogs and they are being told to, like, stay on their leash as much as possible in this moment.
0: To other points to follow on that, Emily. One is we have to recognize, the first of all, the scale of the money that's being spent. So we're talking about $2 trillion that is being spent. And the possibility of, of corruption, of misbehavior, of mismanagement is extraordinary. We've already seen with the SBA loan program, the $349 billion that's supposed to go out to help small businesses an extraordinary amount of mismanagement already and incompetence that you know we needs to be investigated, needs to be understood. And the Trump administration's willingness to countenance, to allow, encourage corruption, self-dealing, dealing to cronies is extraordinary. And we're gonna it's gonna end up that there's gonna be billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars that are siphoned off, that are delivered to people who are have friends in this administration or friends in among powerful people in Congress. And we may never know about it, or if we do know about it, nothing is going to happen to those people. And it's just dispiriting. And it's obviously, it's not as important as, as getting the health of the country, right. And getting the economy, right. But, uh, a corrupt nation is a weaker nation. And this is encouraging corruption. That's one point. Just one second point, John, let me just make one other point, which is I mentioned a few weeks ago, on the show that I thought one of the things that was going to happen during this crisis is that the Trump administration was going to sneak through a whole bunch of stuff while we weren't looking and that the cashiering of Michael Atkinson was slightly noticed. We're talking about it on the show, but that is a, that an example of like, let's just do it at the dead of night on you know the end of a day on a Friday. Uh, they snuck through a repeal of Obama era fuel economy standards without anyone really noticing without it making a news in the paper, even though it's going to cause, Uh, unfathomable amount of new co2 to be dumped into the atmosphere so they are they are going to sneak stuff by us even as this country is in the midst of the greatest crisis that it's had in a century
3: and and one thing i would add to what you're saying david is um first of all i think the the inspector general behavior and the treatment of them is a part of the lack of um, faith in and interest in the normal operations of government that actually will make it more difficult to use the government to solve those bigger problems that you talked about in the economy and in, in the aftermath of this. But, the, the you know, there's another aspect of this that's not just corruption, which is um, has just still has the, the negative effects, which is somebody gets in there and says, I want this solved quickly. And I know a guy and the guy, you know, is the one you hire because it's now easier to do and it's not because you're feathering his nest though that might be the byproduct of this decision but you're putting in charge of something someone who you know just stayed at a holiday inn express last night if it's if it's easier to move without oversight to to um, get your pals to weigh in on things, you're coming to it fresh and new, which is great. In some cases, you have new fresh eyes. In other cases, you have no idea how it operates within the context of the federal government and coordinates with the other agencies. And you end up creating more problems than you solve, which then have to be covered up because the person's been brought in uh, in a political track, not a policy track, so it creates mayhem, even if you're not trying to feather someone's nest, even if you're just trying to do, let's say, the right thing more efficiently. If you don't follow the the process, you end up causing
0: mayhem. Emily, take the last word on this.
3: You know, my deepest fear about
1: this is that it reads to people like the government can't function. And whenever it's the government that becomes less legitimate, it's Democrats who suffer because Democrats want the government to work for them. It's important to realize that the frame for this is corruption, and it's specific to the Trump administration. It is the Trump administration throwing a wrench into the mechanisms that make government accountable to taxpayers. So I would just stop there, but I feel like we have to talk for a minute about what a disastrous mess the election in Wisconsin was this week and also about the fact that bernie sanders has dropped out of the democratic primary making joe biden the presumptive nominee john i need your one or two minute analysis of the democratic field and this shift
3: well i mean you know on one hand it was um kind of inevitable um, i mean we are in a we don't know what what our election looks like um and to the extent that the message and signal beforehand was um, that Democratic voters and particularly uh, uh, want a kind of uh, return to normalcy rather than another revolution, we are in a moment now where um, – on the one hand, there's a strong impulse, I think, to a return to normalcy, obviously a return from to, to the pre-coronavirus era. But then also, I, th- I think there's a strong possibility that people will look at government and say, I want government to operate efficiently, particularly on these big issues that can only be addressed by the federal government. And the fact that Joe Biden has a very close advisor who gets – the highest marks for the Ebola response, Ron Klain, um, is probably good news for Joe Biden. For the so for the message of, we will be the people who know how to run a big organization to the extent you can in a federal government. That's so. That's there's that message. Then there is the Sanders message, which is all the inequities in this in the current American system will be exacerbated and are being exacerbated by. What's happening right now with coronavirus? They're therefore potentially creating an even increased appetite for the message that Sanders had, which is a wholesale uh, rethinking of the um, way America works. How does that wriggle out at the end of this? I don't know. So I guess that's what's on that's what's on my mind. And what's when does that start? When does that conversation begin in earnest at a at a level that's not just hobbyists and obsessives? Um, And I don't know what the answer to that is.
0: My take on this, Emily, much more dreary uh, conventional take is the purpose of the Sanders campaign at this point was to bring attention to a set of messages around inequality and the, the misshape of the American government and the American economic system and the nature of the Covid crisis me- means it's impossible to bring attention to those issues in any meaningful way. This is not a time when Sanders campaigning and his his issues are going to galvanize people, draw attention, be useful to the debate. There will be a time for that. It's just and it's unfortunate because it's it's such an important set of issues, but it's it's very difficult for him to actually do the thing that he is trying to do at this moment. And he, I think he thinks the most more important thing is to in the longer term ensure the election of the democratic nominee who will be joe biden which sanders knew it was going to be joe biden and therefore the the campaign both as a practical matter he was not going to get the nomination and as a ideological and sort of uh psychosocial matter was not useful anymore he wasn't going to be able to do what he's trying to do and so it made sense for him to to pull out at this moment
1: I completely disagree about his message not being important and not being the moment. I mean, I agree with you about the politics. Like, I think that in the end, Bernie Sanders acted like a loyal Democrat, right? He stayed in through Wisconsin to get his voters out into this election in which there were lots of state and local elections at stake, including a Wisconsin state Supreme Court seat. And I just have to take a moment to say that seeing those lines of people standing outside to vote, trying to social distance, wearing masks, really taking serious risks with their health, they should never have been put in that position. And it was truly alarming to see how partisan this debate just about whether it was safe to vote became, with votes in both the Wisconsin Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court dividing entirely along partisan lines about whether this election should go forward. That is all really alarming. But to go back to Sanders' message, I mean, this is a moment in which we are going to see this virus it is already playing out in a way that is more harmful to low income people, right? Like the progressive, the fact we don't have health care. Sorry, I'm going in my rant before I let you interrupt me. Like the fact that we don't have good access to health care, any guarantee of free treatment, living wages, paid sick leave, the fact that so many essential workers are hourly, low wage workers in grocery stores, on delivery trucks, all of that. Like that is Sanders' bread and butter. And Biden's going to have to pick up on that if he's going to be a successful Democratic candidate
3: but david's not david's not saying that those aren't important issues he's saying that as a matter of prioritization and ordering it just you can't get it through i just totally
1: don't buy that i think that's completely wrong i think you have to make that an important part of the conversation right now
3: but who but his point is that you can try but you don't have the the willing ears to hear because people are trying to figure out what the hell to do with the fact that the bills are coming and they haven't been paid. And yes, there are larger inequities, but they're just trying to figure out their, like what's happening at the end of their block. That, that right. It's not that the issues aren't important. They're, as we both said, more important than ever. It's just the question of whether you have the megaphone, the microphone, and the audience that's sufficiently large beyond hobbyists and obsessives I think it's a huge through. mistake
1: for Biden as the candidate now not to be saying both of these things. Like, yes, he should talk about Ron Klain and how they would run the show better, but he also should have a vision about how he wants to change things so that we are insulated and protected and have social resilience from a phenomenon like this. And that is a progressive vision. There is absolutely a map for doing of, that. And uh, I don't Emily, buy about no one, the idea needs, that you can't, can't get have a vision right now,
0: Emily.
3: Nobody's saying you
0: can't have a vision. I don't.
1: I'm disagreeing with the idea that it's not like a crucial crucial message. I think yes, Sanders it's was a, losing. It's a crucial like he message. dropped out because he was losing. That makes it's sense. A,
0: it's a, it's we both. It's have a, said a crucial it's a, message. It's an important just, message. It is in Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Like people can't. This is not you. P- politics is on hold. It's not the issues are not absolutely important and that they're not more important than ever. And then the, the, as you say, like the, the, the virus and the epidemic have highlighted these things even more starkly and more cruelly than before. It's simply that the as a practical matter, The the message cannot – people are not in a moment where they are able to receive it. They can't focus on it. I totally disagree. I just think that is wrong and you don't have
1: any evidence for it. Like when you think about how people are taking in and understanding this, what is the evidence that they can't see that there are these – Incredibly important background issues that are feeding they, into this. They crisis. are
0: important background issues, but they're not important background issues which have to do with a person's presidential campaign and attempt to win delegates in a primary campaign. It is that's to by all means, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden, every single person in the Democratic Party should be crafting a response and being having having a, a vision about this. But it's not fundamentally a political electoral vision that gets you delegates for a convention it's something but it's else. not it, and it, it, running it, a presidential it, campaign at this point is a distraction that because a presidential campaign is an attempt to gather people together and get people around uh, you know f- generally physically around something which you can't even do and so like focus on getting the message and getting those getting those bills written so that in 2021 you get those things passed in congress
1: what I, I agree with you that the primary was played out fine. What I am deeply, deeply in disagreement about, and I feel like now you're trying to wiggle out of half of what you said before. Is the idea that this progressive vision doesn't have a hugely prominent, a central place in American politics right now? It is absolutely what we should be talking about leading into November, and Biden needs to that, figure out how to incorporate that. And he is not doing as effective a job of that right a, now. As a totally
0: separate point. Biden is a t- is is vanished. I don't know what he's doing, and and I agree that Biden's Biden's absence so, is a is a huge gap in the American political landscape. That does. That is, but not I feel like you're conflating the
1: message and the messenger. Like I agree with you, that Bernie Sanders carrying the standard forward it, as a Democratic presidential candidate was not the right strategy.
0: It's that's what I'm talking about. But a that's presidential, not what you said. A presidential campaign at this moment that that is, but it's not outside of politics.
1: It's about moving to the next stage of the presidential campaign.
3: So, so, but I think, I think we would all agree vegetables are healthy. But right now, it's really hard to get vegetables in New York. It doesn't mean that the vegetables aren't still healthy. I should be eating them every day. More important than ever if you're not getting exercise and not moving around. Super important. They're just not there. So that's the argument he's making. Now, you can dispute whether they're there or not. But he's not arguing about whether vegetables are good. Vegetables are good. The, the question is, is there the venue and the ability to get through Is that possible? I think the evidence for the clouded nature of the U.S. um, uh, market right now for media and understanding is people are just trying to get their head around exactly what's happening with, A, the health issue on coronavirus. Wear a mask, don't wear a mask. Six feet, not six feet. Fifteen minutes or not. Because they're at life and death, they really make people agitated. The agitation is carrying a lot of weight in people's heads. Plus, they're trying to figure out about their jobs. We got 6.6 million more people filing for unemployment claims this week. So if they can't get their heads around the things that are at their front doorstep barking at them, it seems less likely that a larger though a very important conversation about the systemic challenges is going to be able to punch through if those immediate terrifying challenge issues are having a tough time getting to
1: Seriously, I'm going to say one more thing. I truly, deeply do not understand why you are both separating these two things or who the people are who you are talking about. Yes, we are all trying to figure out about physical distancing and the ways in which our lives have been utterly disrupted. It is also true— and you were just citing this. We have another 6.6 million people on the jobless rolls. That takes us to 16.6 million for the last three weeks. Look at the lines of people in, in, waiting for food at the food banks, the people who are going to come out of this with medical bills, who don't know how their treatment is going to get paid for. Again, like it's not to me, there is nothing separate. From that and the conversation in the progressive movement that Bernie Sanders has been a standard bearer for it is the same conversation and to miss the opportunity to talk about it that way if the Democrats do that that will be a huge huge error.
3: What's your guidance for how you think somebody should get that conversation past the ones that people are having in their home now, that we're all having in our homes right now? I to just get don't to really know like which homes you're
1: talking about. I think people who are low income, who are insecure, who are worried about their future are trying to think about all of those things and will understand, like it will be intuitive to a lot of them why these things all go together. Like the idea that is hard for them to understand that maybe they should have a government that cares about whether they have food, that does not seem like like some difficult concept for people to grasp. Okay,
0: Emily, finish it, please. It just
1: seems like a misreading of important parts of the American electorate.
0: Sure. But I think making
3: it seem like it's some moral failing of our ability to understand it is is wrong. I think it's possible that people could be more worried about getting food on the table and where they're going to find the money to do it than some political debate, which is going to seem abstract, which already seems abstract even in good times. Like, it's not crazy to think that people who are of even more difficult situations, the people I've been talking to all week for this show, have any are even turning the news on because it so disgusts them. I mean, if you've got a mother on dialysis and your dad just died of COVID, 19 and you've got a 16 year old sister who can't go to school because there aren't enough laptops at the local school for people to distance learning you're not talking about what's joe biden's progressive vision
1: i i I mean i just don't i i do not accept the idea that you like that it's that the whole world first of all i just find that we're having a conversation based on zero evidence about like one family that you're channeling or, like, the people Eli talked to at a food bank yesterday who were, like, deeply concerned. I, it, For me, it has nothing to do with the... Fr- I don't care about Joe Biden. I don't care about the Democratic primaries. Like, I agree with you guys. That is over. I am talking about going forward, like, where the country is going to go next. And the idea that people don't care about that right now, just, I mean, that is not reflected in my report. The discussion
0: is about Bernie Sanders ending a political campaign. You
1: are both separating politics. I mean, I think part of what we're arguing about is like what you each mean by politics. And I just don't accept it. Like, I just don't agree with it fundamentally. Um, and I think it's, it's actually like a really bad idea to kind of wall off politics as this like abstract thing that's only like cable news heads talking as but opposed to the- something that's vital to the way people's lives unfold. That neither of us did that. That is totally how I'm hearing it.
3: Well, that's definitely how you're hearing it. We took it
0: all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade Two. Play it now with Game Pass.
3: Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
4: A laundry? <sighs> oh, a book club. Computer solitaire?
0: Huh? Ah, <sighs> oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumba Casino. dot com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
4: Hey, Slate listeners. I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn. Gaze against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, And Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash Hope to see you there.
0: When you are hopefully having a drink at the end of the day, or maybe at the beginning of the day these days, um, and you want to talk to somebody about something interesting, John Dickerson, what will you be chattering about?
3: Oh, I don't know if I'll be actually chattering about it, but um, just the this week, John Prine, the um, musician, passed away, and um, it was a really hard thing as a fan of his work. And one of the probably one of the greatest pleasures of my professional life was um, getting to spend a day with him for a piece that I did about a year ago. Um, and an hour and a half of that day is on YouTube. So if you're a John Prine fan, we basically just strung together a lot of the in-between times um, and put it on YouTube. And uh, it gives you a sense of who he was as a, as a person, which uh, if you liked his music is um, uh, maybe something you'll be interested in uh, now that he's gone.
0: Emily.
1: Oh, I just want to say it was so sad. And John, your relationship with him was such a lovely part of your professional life. It's um I'm glad you did that tribute to him. Um, I have a, A different kind of emotional register chatter, which is really outrage. Uh, The Cook County Jail in Chicago has become, um, according to one study, the biggest vector for coronavirus in the country, the place to which the most cases can be linked. There are somewhere around 240 detainees at the jail who have the virus, along with over 100 staff members, and I think at this point, 17 people are in the hospital. And What's horrifying about this is how predictable it was. I mean, there are pandemic outbreaks happening in other jails, too. Rikers in New York has been a particular source of concern. When I was doing reporting in the last few weeks in Chicago, I was talking to a defense lawyer there, Catherine Crawford, and she was urgently trying to get her clients out of jail because they were reporting to her that they didn't have access to enough soap. For a while, there was no hand sanitizer. They said that the guards were not wearing masks and that, like, they, you know, didn't really see gloves around either. Just all of these things were missing. And when we called the jail to check these facts, they told us that all of them were false and were really adamant about that, that we would be reporting false facts if we, um, reported what the detainees were telling us. Then at the end of last week, 12 corrections officers through their law firm issued a letter confirming all of these facts and saying that they were afraid for their own safety because the jail had not been taking these precautions. So I don't know what is going on at this jail exactly. Sheriff Tom Dart has continued to say that soap and hand sanitizer were available along with protective gear, but there was some terrible failing here, and I really hope that somebody gets to the bottom of it
0: what in other countries with with the epidemic are there jails and prisons as much of a shit show as ours? I mean,
1: th- we have so many more people percentage-wise incarcerated, so that's part of the problem. Iran opened the doors and let a lot of people go, and there have also been, um, there was a a protest, and I think some people broke out of prison in Brazil over coronavirus too. So this has been a source of unrest elsewhere. I think American jails and prisons, just because there are so many people there, and remember, the people in jail are there before a trial, they are presumed innocent. And what was happening in Chicago that Catherine Crawford was dealing with, she had to individually go into court, often multiple times, to get people out of jail who are being held on bonds, often because of misdemeanor offenses. And the sort of the out of whack sense of that, um, that, you know, you would be holding people for nonviolent offenses they were accused of, not proved guilty of right now, um, is pretty breathtaking.
0: My chatter, too, too quick one very quick one. First, um, the news came yesterday that Linda Tripp died at 70. And that was something that's so hard to stay on top of the news that isn't COVID news. Um, But Linda Tripp was a huge figure in the Clinton sex scandal that preoccupied certainly me and John for a couple of years in in the late 90s. And She was a really, it's a, she's a really ambivalent figure verging towards villainous, but she's of course the woman who taped Monica Lewinsky and Monica Lewinsky's account of the affair that she was having with president Clinton, and then ultimately shared those tapes. I don't know, nothing more to say. There's a wonderful interview with trip in slow burn season two, uh, where Leon Nafak interviewed trip and it's, it's quite riveting. Did you see the, that
1: Lewinsky before trip to Eyes, sent out a very um nice tweet saying despite the past i hope that you are okay i thought that was pretty noticeable
0: Huh i did not see that Yeah They did not they never spoke after 1998 they had not spoken in 22 years The other uh, quick chatter is just to draw attention to the Washington Post reporting about the racial disparities in Covid nineteen deaths and illness, and to, to follow on points that we've hit on elsewhere, kind of in this conversation. Just this is a disease that is really, really hitting the most vulnerable vulnerable people in this country hardest, and we see this in the racial disparity of Covid nineteen deaths. and The post has reported this out in Milwaukee County: African Americans are seventy three percent of the dead, but just twenty six percent of the population in Louisiana. of the dead are African-Americans, although they're just 32% of the population. In Chicago, black residents are dying at a rate six times higher than that of white residents. And this is, uh, you know, there's probably a a ton of reasons for it, but COVID-19 patients seem to be susceptible to diseases, which are diseases of poverty, uh, which disproportionately affect African-Americans and African-Americans in cities. So diabetes and asthma being two of them. And it's unsettling and disturbing, and at least the CDC now seems to be starting to track this and paying attention to it um, but it's it's a alarming alarming I fact. mean
1: I think you also it's important to recognize the structural inequality of lack of access to health care over people's lives and the effect that that also has on their health and on them right now.
3: because of that, they were already in a bad spot, which makes them more vulnerable. Those pictures in Florida of people lining up to, to try to get benefits uh, were just awful.
0: I did not see those pictures lining up to get benefits. What was that?
3: I mean, it made, it made Wisconsin no. look orderly. Um, you know, Just people, just a big mass of people, hundreds of them, yeah. um, to file applications for unemployment at the state office because um, the, co- the state website crashed.
1: Right, the county was making um, people come and fill out paper applications and then everybody showed yeah. up at once, yeah.
3: Yeah, and they're just standing, you know, all on top of each other in line. I mean, some of them with masks and stuff. But um, uh, just, you know, to just to see people that close is uh, additionally unsettling.
0: Listeners, uh, you have sent us great chatters this week as in past weeks. Please keep them coming to at Slate Gabfest, And this week's comes from Rachel Johnston at at M. Johnston she points to a Minneapolis star tribune article about a game warden in Wisconsin, who last week uh, after a boy ran away and ran off as in in extremely cold weather out into a very uh, remote, hard to access and difficult, treacherous swampy area in Wisconsin, this young game warden who had amazing human tracking skills just without anything but his own mind and his own intelligence found this boy uh before something terrible happened to him and it's a, it's a really riveting and touching story that made me cry so um and it has a happy ending unlike everything else these days check it out if you enjoyed the GAFS, please subscribe you'll get new episodes the second they're published that is our show for today the GAFS is produced by jocelyn frank our researcher is bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is Editorial Director of Slate Podcast. June Thomas is Managing Producer. And you should follow us on Twitter at at SlateGabFest and tweet chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thank you for listening. We will talk to you next week. Stay safe and healthy. We wish you safety and health. Bye-bye. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Uh, This... This uh, confinement and this, this period has brought all sorts of old things new again, old games brought out board games, jigsaw puzzles and one game that I used to love and used to play with my children in the car was I guess it's called Tell Me a Story I'm sure there are other versions of it and the idea is we're just going to make up a story right now for the next five minutes we're just going to tell a story So, uh, Emily Bazelon start us off. You got the first sentence. Two it's sentences. Sentence. Each. Two sentences <clears throat> maybe.
1: What I have in my head right now is the story of Passover. No. No, start it. No. Okay. Start it. Doesn't matter. There there was a king and he was uh he was threatening th- the health of a whole lot of babies. Um and there were two midwives, and they decided that they were going to fly in the face of the orders of these kings. And a baby was born, and they hid the baby um, and pretended that. Um...
0: <laughs> well, it's like, right, can't you tell a story that's not Passover? I
1: didn't have to start. I well, feel like fine. starting is so that's hard. Fine,
0: but it... go ahead.
1: Um, I, I, uh, let me think of something. No, no,
3: that's different. fine. And then we go, some, one of us takes the next yeah, sentence. Go ahead, oh, okay. John, you're next. Okay. But this kid, this king had, um, one great strength and one punishing weakness. Uh, the punishing weakness was his vanity. There literally could not be, a, a glass of water on a table that he did not seek his reflection in it. Uh, and that that ultimately would be his undoing. But his great strength was that he was hit by completely unpredictable and deep bouts of charity.
0: GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today.
2: It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria
1: Cash.